Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I'm from Puerto Rico and I uh, was born in the 1960s into a communist household. My father was a founding member of the Puerto Rican Communist Party. He, he did not believe in God and he, he told us that this country, America, was the enemy of the human race and every decent person will fight to destroy America. And I believe him. <laughs> I, I grew up in that, that environment, remember <coughs> being a child, going to these never-ending uh, communist meetings, uh, listening to Fidel Castro's speeches, seven hours of talking, I mean, come on. <laughs> but that was my everyday life at home. My father was really a very, very engaged communist, a very intellectually sophisticated man also, who, who taught us that that was the way to help the poor. So I grew up in, in that environment. As a testimony and witness, the, I want to show you this is his, his FBI file. <laughs> I received this through the Freedom of Information Act that denotes 45 years. I was one year old when this file was started. And this is just half of his FBI file. So he was a soldier for revolution. He will go to Cuba, two court cases for terrorism, are uh, here in this in this file. It just tells you that what kind of environment I grew up. Uh, again, I remember him taking us every day to listen to Fidel, and he will shout and yell revolutionary slogans, and the police will come because the neighbors were upset as he's, <laughs> as he's yelling. And uh, that was that's the, the environment. My wife was, well, this is the 1960s in Hispanic country. Women tend to be subservient. She was, well, whatever he says we are, <laughs> that's what we are. She did not have any kind of uh, political inklings. She has some faith. But she was always sad because my father will, will always tell her that she will give the life of the four kids she had at home for revolution at any instant. And I remember her crying, and we will come to console her. But I believe my father. I, I, I wanted and I longed for that kind of commitment. Uh, I believe and hated this country. And part of my hatred of this country was that I blame America for everything. I blame America for the poverty that we were living in the 1960s Puerto Rico. No bathroom in the home. Very, very, very poor. No car, nothing, you know? I blamed America for the bad marriage between my mom and my dad. And the reality is that socialism destroyed our, uh, their marriage. My father was only interested in revolution. My mother on the four kids she had to feed and no job. She had, he had no job because the FBI was constantly behind, after my father. Uh, in these uh, pages you will uh, see the reports of two men who followed my father for about 30 years. <coughs> and his, their names are there. Uh, and they were FBI agents. I was probably six years old, four, four, five, six years old, when I remember my mom crying again and running out of the home uh, to talk with two men who were always there in the car. And, and imagine 
you are a four or five year old kid seeing your mom desperate and running and getting out of the home in the middle of the night to talk with two men that you don't know who they are. I, I, to this day, I remember the shock and the fear that I experienced seeing that. Coming back later on, many years later, I learned that they were two FBI agents that were always in front of our home. And I hated them. I hated them because of what was happening in, in my home. And that he hated of, of America grew on me, in me for a long, long time. And I was invested in the ideas of revolution. I joined the, the Communist Party with my father. And uh, I moved myself to become a, a revolutionary. At the same time, my mother had some faith. And from time to time, she will sneak us to go to to mass with friends without my father knowing about it, you know, because he would not have allowed it. You know, this thing about religion is the capitalist invention to keep you thinking about heaven while they're having a good time here on earth. <laughs> uh, so it's a lie. It's really something that we make, make up. But I grew up with this kind of double consciousness. On the one side, God, because I was hearing about God in church, and on the other side, a revolution, my true, my true belief. And uh, so eventually, I, what was a good Catholic communist boy to do? I joined the Jesuit order, of course. <laughs> this is in the 1980s. It was almost a requirement to, to, to join the Jesuit order to be a communist. They were all Marxists. Remember, this is the 1980s, Hispanic country, Latin America, and uh, liberation theology was all over the place. And that was really very strong influence in the seminary, in the Jesuit seminary. So I remember if I was not a socialist, I didn't have a lot of chance to get, be admitted into seminary. My father, who didn't believe in God, he, he was happy that I was joining the, 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 the Jesuit order because he knew that they were all uh, Marxist, or at least some kind of socialistic uh, idea. Uh, so that, that's when I joined the Jesuit order intent and becoming a Jesuit priest, because I wanted to go to Nicaragua. That's my reason. I, didn't, I don't think I had a vocation <laughs> uh, to the priesthood. I really wanted to, to merge that double consciousness that had grown in me for so long, God and revolution. And I wanted to find them to be connected, that there was a real connection between them. And the, then the Jesus were giving me the opportunity to make that connection. So I joined the order, very happy, happily looking forward to go to, to Nicaragua to study philosophy after my first uh, two years in, in seminary. Uh, why Nicaragua? Well, Nicaraguan revolution was happening at that time, the Sandinistas were in power. I was right there in the border with El Salvador where the university was there where I was going to be studying. And, uh, and that was why, why I wanted to go there. I wanted to be a revolutionary. I wanted to study liberation theology from the masters of liberation theology, who were many of them professors at that university. Ignacio Jacuria, Juan Luis Segundo, Gustavo Gutierrez, many of them were professors there or guest professors. 
and I was looking forward to that. But something happened, you're just way too young <laughs> to remember that. But there were seven Jesuits who were murdered in El Salvador in the mid-1980s. And uh, they were people, I met a couple of them, and they were savagely murdered, and two women who live in the house were murdered with them. And we were going to be living at that home. So I was looking forward to going to live at that home. You can imagine, out of concern for us, they decided not to send us to, to Nicaragua. And uh, I was so angry, and I left seminary immediately. <laughs> I, I did, again, I did not have any intentions of being a priest. I wanted to be a revolutionary priest and go to Nicaragua. When they told me you had to go to Forham, I said, no, no, I'm not going to the United States. <laughs> I'm not going there. I wanted to go to Nicaragua, and I left seminary. Frustrated, angry, went back to my home in the little town of Isabela in Puerto Rico, not knowing what to do. And that's when I decided to make a, a choice that, that at the time I didn't want to make to come to America, to come to what we call the gods of the monster. That's how we call this country. The, 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 the gods of the monster. And I came to the University of Southern Mississippi of all places. <laughs> so you can imagine this black Puerto Rican communist kid who hates America, <laughs> doesn't know English, <laughs> and going to so Southern Mississippi where I, I, I thought I understood English. When I went there, I couldn't understand a word. <laughs> so I am suddenly in America the, the enemy territory. But I always say that that's when God allowed me to breathe the breath of freedom when I came to the United States, even there in deep south Mississippi. Uh, uh, because for the first time in my life, I, you know, I questioned the assumptions that were the air I bred. You know, when you are, grow up in a communist household, that's, that's your life. All your relationships are part of the party. You don't have relationships that are not coming. It's almost a, like a cult, you know? It's like a, a religion. And uh, suddenly I find myself in the United States, and I begin to, for the first time, question the assumptions of my ideology. And not always we have that chance. Sometimes we take for granted so many things in life, you know? It's, ideologies are like a comfortable pair of glasses you put on yourself. And you're so used to that pair of glasses that you don't want to change them. And through that prism, you look at reality. And it's the same reality you were looking before, but when you put a different pair of glasses, suddenly you see things that you didn't see before. But it's, you are afraid of making that change because you're so used to this pair of glasses. And that's what socialism is, Marxism is. It's really, it's really an idea that is so deeply ingrained in you that that it's difficult to, to give up the dream of socialism. I said socialism is really, is really our intellectual arrogance of the human being who thinks that we can change the world. You know, the, these people, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna change the world, and I have the radical mental capacity to look at reality and put everything in place. We can do that, and then, then heaven will come just by doing that. It's really arrogance, we, we don't have that capacity. You know, life is too complicated and human beings are, are free pe persons. We make choices all the time. How, who can unscramble the, the egg of, of, of reality? We can't. 
but socialists think that they can. I thought, yes, we can fix this. We can create heaven without God because we can create systems that will bring about perfect, perfect relationships. The alienation of one against the other will disappear if we just will it and we will change it. For the first time, I began to question that. Maybe that's not true. <laughs> that's not. One of the things that happened to me was that this thing that you Americans call poverty was really a joke. <laughs> I mean, come on, give me some of that poverty. And that's what we're going to talk today <laughs> a little bit. Uh, if you have been in Central America and even in Puerto Rico and you compare that poverty with the poverty you experience here, you can begin to see a, a drastic contrast between what we call poverty here and what is poverty in other places. Uh, and that, didn't, that wasn't supposed to be happening. My father w told me that America was the hell of the workers and things were horrible there. And suddenly I come here and things are not as bad as I thought, as I thought they were. Even in southern Mississippi, which is the poorest part of the country, was way richer than my little uh, island of, of Puerto Rico. So that was the first uh, shocking reality that I experienced coming here. And the second was that, you know, I came here not even speaking English. I had good grades. I worked hard. I had good grades. And they come into the dean's office and offer me an assistantship, pay me all my, my uh, studies, everything. And I say, wait a minute, <laughs> this is not supposed to be happening either. You know, I hate these people's guts and <laughs> they're rewarding me. And I began to see that connection between reward and accomplishment that this country taught me that is important. And we are losing, I think. And that's what we're going to discuss today about how to help the poor. When we sever, when we break that connection between what you get and what you do, poverty will remain in place. And, and that is, is so important to understand. Eh? We think that helping the poor is giving them stuff. And we call that compassion. And we will see how that is not the case today. But that happened to me, that connection between reward and accomplishment. And I began to see myself as an individual. As a socialist, you don't see yourself as an individual. You're a soldier of revolution. You are a drop in the great sea of revolution. And as long as you are part of that wave, you are doing your job. Your life doesn't have meaning apart from the group. America was teaching me, you have meaning. You are an individual person. You have the capacity. And we're going to reward that capacity. And that was very powerful for me. In the meantime, I was losing my relationship with my father because imagine, he, he has dedicated all his life to communism. He couldn't understand that I was for the first time questioning these ideas. It was very painful. It was very difficult to have that kind of experience with him because he saw me, he, I saw myself losing him and he saw me betraying him. Remember, if you leave revolution and re leave the Communist Party, it's like betraying your family. And, and you are ostracized, and your friends become your enemies. And so that was very, very difficult. And it uh, was an experience that, that, that e eventually grew deeper and deeper and until we were not talking to each other because 
of the, the, great, the great differences between us. Eventually he died, my father died a communist uh, with the red flag of communism over his casket and I went back to Puerto Rico and I pumped my fist again in his honor. I sang the revolutionary songs for him, but I was now really not enamored with this idea of revolution anymore. Something happened before he died that I thank God for. The last year of his life, he was 94, and uh, he began to go to mass. <laughs> the last year of his, 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 his life, he began to go to mass daily. He would not talk about it. You know? <laughs> he would just go, and uh, he was still a communist, but I, I think that God touched him at the very end. And before he died, he told me, Ismael, he called me and told me, Ismael, I don't understand this thing that you have embraced, but you better stand for it. Because he stood for it. He knew, this is a witness of 50, almost 50 years of standing for something that he believed that was true. So don't be a fence-sitter. You better stand for what you believe. And that's the problem we have in America. We talk about freedom and all these things. It's just it's an exercise. It's just an intellectual thing that we say. You know, we're so bored in our affluence <laughs> that we we don't really stand for our convictions, not only on faith, on freedom, but also on faith. You know, people talk. I'm Catholic. What does that mean? Not much. <laughs> so we need to stand for the convictions, and that stood with me for the rest of my life. That you're gonna believe something, you need to stand stand for it. So that is the context of what happened to me. As I come to America, and now we're going to talk a little bit about poverty especially, and I want this to be a conversation. Please don't stand there and listen to me talk. Ans ask questions, comments, anecdotes of your own life, question and challenge what I say, because that's okay too, you know. But as I come to America, uh, I begin to see many of the assumptions that I was abandoning being embraced by people, sometimes even in the church, that are supposedly working for the poor. It's not assumptions that are openly expressed, but behind what they do, many of the things I used to believe about, about the human person, about society, as a socialist, is exactly what they are teaching <laughs> and practicing when they are trying to help the poor. So many of you are probably involved in inner city work or ministry. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, be careful with what we do for the poor. That, even that phrase is one I don't like. Doing for other people instead of doing with other people. But we're going to be talking about, about that. As I come in, I join. Uh, re rediscover my faith, I renounce to socialism, begin to learn and to study and to read things I had never read before, because all that stuff is propaganda, as my father used to say, you don't read that stuff, you stay away <coughs> from, from, from those things that, that they tell you. I began to see these assumptions about society. But I'm going to start with asking you a question. What is poverty? <coughs> what is in your mind Poverty. I hope that you can see. Uh, and I would like to put your answers here, and we will revisit them later. Okay. In your mind, if, if a word comes when you hear the word poverty, 
or a phrase, what would you say? Desperation. Desperation. Okay. What else? When you heard, hear that word, what is the image that comes? Vulnerable. Vulnerable. See? Surprise. Okay. Deprived, not having something. Lesser. What else? Hungry. And as I discuss these things with you also, we, you can follow it in the, in the manual. You don't have to go through the manual. You can later on read what is in the manual. It's more for you to go deeper into what I'm saying today. Yes, ma'am. Weak. Do you, do you uh, are you around poor people often? Anyone can give me any? Experience you've had being around poor people and how you felt? Uh, feed the homeless. Feed the homeless here in, in California. In California. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, any experience you've had about poverty, being around the poor, you can tell me, yes, I was, or I, I am there. And Anyone? Yes. <laughs> Yes, oh. Very good, excellent, excellent description. You know, but uh, deprived, that's what you're saying, not having certain minimal basic needs uh, met in America. Well, I don't know if you can see uh, well, but the reality is that that was a little bit of a trick question. <laughs> Why is that? Because I am convinced that the, que that the reality is that that question is not as important. What is poverty and what are the poor? You know why? Because when you talk about poverty, poverty has been the condition of the human race for 5,000 years. I mean, people have been poor until around 200 years ago, that people discovered the, 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 the ideas of economics. And, and they began to change the way we work. And suddenly, boom, you saw this explosion of wealth creation. And the lifestyles that we have today, you know, has no comparison with anything that happened for 5,000 years. You know, the, the poor in America have a better lifestyle than the pharaohs in Egypt. 
you, and the first in Egypt 5,000 years ago were the really, really rich guys of the time. But if you compare their lifestyle with the lives of most people on earth today, even those who are poor will have a better lifestyle, especially in wealthier countries like ours. There may be many other countries in the world that that's not the case. But here, when we will see the statistics, we'll see the reality of poverty. Poverty has been the common condition of humanity for so long. But this is the real question that we never ask when we are trying to help the poor. What causes human flourishing? What makes you wake up in the morning and want to engage the world? What causes people to get out of the morass that they live and wake up and they engage and, and be excited and, and, and want to use their minds to create and change things around them? And when we change the question about the poor, we will be seeing different answers on how to help the poor. Because if you ask, okay, what the poor need? Well, what is then you're gonna do? What were you gonna try to, to do then? Yes? Encourage them. Encourage them? But many times is that most people do what? Yes? Supply, give them. You know, if there is a hole of need, you, you try to fill that hole. And then the other hole of need, and the other, and the other. But the problem with that exercise is that if I'm a poor person, and I have all these needs, and you come and meet all my needs, what is there for me to do? It's to become a passive recipient of your magnanimity, instead of an active participant in a life that I build, I'm building for myself. And that is the, the, the fear I have that many times we do. When I started this institute, I had a board of directors, and the first thing they asked me was, what is the need out there, and what need we're going to meet? That, that, that's always the question. What are we going to do? And, and I said, nothing. They couldn't understand <laughs> what I was saying. No, that's not what we are here for. We're not here to meet other people's needs. We're here to help people discover what makes them flourish. And that is the question you should ask yourself when you see a situation of need. What makes people wake up and begin to fix those problems for themselves? <clears throat> so changing the question will help us understand the needs of the poor better. So, what makes people flourish is what is important. Ultimately, we must uh, talk about the human person. Let me see. Let me see. And dignity. Someone mentioned the lack of dignity. God made us free. And when political and economic systems reflect our nature, people flourish, people prosper. That is so important, the connection between freedom and the systems we create. Again, as I begin, begin to come to America, I begin to see the importance of the individual person. I begin to see the importance of economic activity, what I do, and the connection between reward and accomplishment. And I believe that that is what we need to be looking when we are trying to help the poor. But let's talk about poverty in America for a little bit. 
in America today, we are told that we have about 49 million people in poverty. Okay. It was 46 in 2010, it's 49 now in 2014. And that's about 15% of the population in the country. So we are told that we have 49, 46, 49 people who are poor. But what does that mean? The problem with that is that it doesn't say anything. You know, the label of poor doesn't say anything about the specific lifestyles and, and quality of life of people. I hate those labels. We have always put those labels on people, the rich and the poor, the blacks and the whites, <laughs> the, the, the haves and the haves nots. And it really doesn't tell me anything about you as an individual person and what type of lifestyle you have. It's hard to tell, but statistics tend to hide information. They don't reveal about anything. You know what happens? The government has decided that $23,000 or below, and you have a family of four, you are poor. That's something that they went to Washington and they decided, you know, this is the line. Under that line, you are poor. Over that line, you are not. And they're always moving the line up. By one decree in Washington that they changed the line, they send a lot of people into poverty and they have the same lifestyle they have yesterday when they were supposedly not poor. And that's exactly how we count the poor in America. And it's a political exercise that politicians love that big number there because that means more money into these government programs supposedly to attend the poor. That's what happens. It doesn't say anything about the real lifestyles of the poor. It's what we call a proxy. What is, it's a, an approximation, more or less, of a reality. When we count the poor in America, we count only wages. In other words, you have to have an employer uh, reporting earned income from you. The reality is that in this 46, 49 million people who are poor in America, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, are not people who live in poverty. They are very wealthy people who, do, who get all their income from stocks and bonds. There is no employer reporting wages on them. And because there is no employer reporting wages on them, they are included in the statistics of poverty. So you can have millionaires who don't work, don't have anyone reporting wages on them in the statistics of poverty. In the 1990s, one of the poorest counties in America was supposedly Stanford in California. Anyone who has been in Stanford knows that that's not possible. It's a very wealthy place. You know why? Because there are thousands of graduate students at Stanford University who come from very wealthy families across the country, but they report no income because they are students. They are in the statistics of poverty for Stanford, and Stanford receives millions of dollars from the federal government to attend the poverty that doesn't exist. Yeah. Now, Palo Alto is a, a county that is closer. has a lot of minorities, a lot of very poor people, less people there, and they receive less money because they have supposedly less poor people in Palo Alto. You see, what's the problem with the statistics? They say absolutely nothing about the real conditions 
and the lifestyles of the poor. And that's what we miss when we look at those numbers. But again, politicians love those big numbers because they can go on TV and say, oh my God, poverty, 49 million people poor. We need to spend more money in poverty. And then you love the poor if you agree to put more zeros at the end of their budgets. That's what they tell you, that you really care for the poor. Doesn't say anything about the living conditions of the poor. How poverty is defined by the government. These are statistics directly from the census, 2010 census. Oh, Lord, I cannot, it's hard to, to see. <coughs> I hope, I wish. <coughs> But you can, you can follow it probably from, uh, from the, missing one. Well, I'll, I'll tell you and you can, you can, I can see it clearly here. 80% of poor people in America in 2010 had air conditioning. 80% of the poor had air conditioning. 36% of all Americans had air conditioning in, 2000, in 1970. Only 80% of all poor. So 80% of the poor, according to the census of 2010, had air conditioning. Only 36% of all Americans had air conditioning in 1970. 92% of poor people had a microwave, 67% has at least one DVD player, and 70% had a VCR, the, the statistics of 2010. 75% of the poor had a car or a truck, 31% had two or three cars. 83% of poor people in America in, in 2010, and 96% of poor children were never hungry, did never experience hunger at any time in 2010 because the family could not afford food. 96% of the poor in America, according to the census, never experienced hunger in 2010 because the family could not afford food. That's another way that the government tricks statistics. For example, if you experience one day of reported hunger for the year, you are in the statistics of hungry people for the entire year. Okay? So that's me when I'm trying to lose some weight. <laughs> I can't report the one day. You report one day of hunger, you are in the statistics of hunger for the entire year. Just over 50% had a personal computer and a cell phone. More than 50% of the poor had a video game like the Xbox. Just under 50% had internet access. 63.7% had cable or satellite TV. A third had a widescreen plasma or LCD TV. One in four had a digital video recorder just as TiVo. The typical household in America had more living space in their home than the average non-poor European family. So this is the, the face of poverty in America. 
the reality is that the poverty that we are talking about in America is very different from the kind of image that comes to our mind when we talk about poor people. The, the kind of deprivation and desperation of real poverty, of poverty of means. And the problem is that the, that the poverty we have in America probably is more difficult to attend than, than the poverty you have in other places. Because the poverty in other places is fixed with stuff. <laughs> in other places, people really need a plate of food or they'll die. But the poverty we have in America is a different type of poverty. It's a poverty that has been incentivized by the systems we have created. And those systems really perpetuate poverty because they have made poverty easier to bear. You know, if I'm a poor person and you give me food, you, give me, you pay my bills, you give me clothing, the other give me more, the government pays my home, uh, welfare, food stamps, the school supplies in the, are given to me, in Christmas turkeys are flying all over the place for, for me. Christmas, uh, I mean, in, during Thanksgiving and Christmas, someone gives me the toys for, for Christmas. Why bother get out of poverty? There is no incentive for getting out of poverty at all. So what you do is that you settle to remain in poverty, but more or less well-fed. And we have created these systems that perpetuate that, that condition, instead of trying to help people get out of that condition. And it's not just government. Many times we do that in the way we attend poverty. In my church, what we do when Christmas comes, well, you put a Christmas tree in the back, and it has a piece of paper with a name. And the next Sunday, you bring the bike. You didn't know that child or that family. You don't want to meet that family. <laughs> You just want to feel good about yourself in attending that need. And then you go on in life thinking that that is helping people getting out of poverty. But the reality is that that's not the way that God made the human person. Let me see if I can. There, there is a difference between absolute poverty. Absolute poverty is when you, you, you are deprived. You really do not have resources, period. And a poverty that is statistical poverty. Absolute poverty is real need. Statistical poverty is a line of demarcation that people have created and has said, under that line, you are poor. And relative poverty is poverty relative to the society where you live. Well, we live in the wealthiest society in the history of the human race compared with the other societies in life. The average uh, hourly rate in, in, the, in the world today uh, to decide that you are not living in poverty is $1.25. So uh, you make more than $1.25 and you are not poor, according to the statistics of the United Nations. Compare that with the poverty we have in the United States. It's, it's no, there's no comparison. So, is poverty destiny in America? If I ask you that question, is poverty destiny? Would you be able to, to tell me? Are you destined to stay in poverty here in the United States? No. Exactly. Yes. No, the reality is that there are two competing visions of, the, of, of society here. You know? 
in America, the reality is that most people who stay to, who are poor today, the research has told us that it takes a poor family in America about eight years to get out of poverty. Between 67 and 80 percent of all poor, poor households in America are no longer poor in eight years. So it is possible to move out of poverty in the in. in in America. This, why is that? Because the economy is, if I ask you, you know, if, if I give you a third of a pizza or a fourth of a pizza, which one you will prefer? The third? Any other answer? Well, the reality is that it depends on the size of the pizza, no? If I give you a bagel bite, it doesn't matter if I give you a third of a fourth. And that's the difference between the idea of the economy where you see the pizza as a static pizza. It's the pizza is always the same size. So how are we going to give more to the poor? By slicing the pizza differently, no? So if your slice is too big, the only way I can help the poor is by slicing your, your slice a little bit smaller so I can give some of yours to the other person. But there is another vision of the, the, the economy. is that the economy is an ever-expanding and shrinking pie. So it is possible that you get richer and the other get richer too. So you have to really look at the at reality and society in a different light, where you see the expanding possibilities in your life. So when we help the poor to realize that that is, is possible, then we are helping the poor get out of poverty. Let me give you an example. We have in our institute a program. It's called the Self-Reliance Club. I went two years ago to this uh, massive distribution of school supplies. There were about 2,000 kids, mostly black and brown kids, getting the free school supplies from a small cadre of white people. <laughs> it's always like that. <laughs> And, and I said, you know, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with this exercise. I know that the kids need the school supplies, but what are these kids learning? When they're learning that there is benefit in standing in line, that there is a free lunch, and it comes from those people out there, those strangers, and I can get by in poverty. I can receive food from here, and receive help here and there, and my life is not that bad anyway. I don't really have to do much more than that, and I still can have a more or less okay life. So we decided to say, well, why don't we meet that need in a different way? So we started what we call the Self-Reliance Club. We go to public schools. We're now in 25 schools in, in Lee County. The kids open savings accounts, and they work in their schools throughout the entire year in all kinds of need projects. They work in urban gardening, they do beautification, educational projects, and they earn money throughout the entire year. They're earning money. We bring people to teach them economics. At the end of the year, they get their earnings and deposit their earnings in their savings account. And they can use that money to buy their school supplies, buy their uniforms, and meet their educational needs. You see, they did it themselves. They learn this connection between reward and accomplishment. And they love to do that because now, when you have those school supplies, no one wants, don't touch that. It cost me something. They were engaged in the process of meeting their needs. They learned that connection between reward and accomplishment. The real need was met, but it was met in a different way. 
And that is the kind of intelligent exercise that we need when we are trying to help the poor. We start in elementary schools. We want to start with the kids very early on so they begin to internalize these ideas about human freedom and engagement and working hard for what you receive. And then the club follows them. And they can earn up to $50 every year for their uh, future scholarship for college. When they graduate from high school, then we get donors to match what they have earned. It's a very different exercise than just graduating and saying, I need money, give me money for, the, for, for college. Now you can say, you know, for six or seven years I have been working. Look at what I have done. Would you help me? And that is a totally different, different exercise. You see, the, the need is real. The kids do need school supplies. But the need is being met in a different way, by engaging them in the process of getting out of poverty. But the reality is that the re the, the, my experiences of 20 years in the inner city is that there are resources there. The problem is sometimes how we engage people in the exercise of getting out of poverty and what we do with the resources. Comes to mind an African-American woman I had known for about 20 years, had been in and out of drugs for a long time. And she comes to me about five years ago and says, Ismael, the reality is I've been, I've been, I know my people. You know, We have money. There's plenty of money in the, in the ghetto. You know what happens? In the beginning of the month, all the checks are coming. You know? And then we many times squander that, those resources. By the end of the month, of course, we're a little bit uh, low in resources. And you know what we do? I have done that. We come to you. <laughs> we come to you because we know that you're going to give us something. And then you write, help us to cope with that last week. And then the, the checks start coming the next month again. And we go into the same cycle of dependency. What happened to me years ago was something similar. I began to see sitting at my desk and, and the ministry and right there in the inner city, the children of those I have been giving food for many years coming themselves for food. And that paid me because it, that demonstrated that I was part of a cycle of dependency. I was not part of the solution. I was helping people keep them more or less well-fed but still in poverty. When they had the answer within themselves, and I was not helping them find the answer. And you start with small, small steps. And we will talk about that in a second. So we talk about the pie. You know, the pie is, this is so important because when I was a socialist, that's exactly what I believed. The economy is fixed. And I am poor because the capitalist out there has cut for himself a larger piece of the pie. So how can I change my condition? I had to go to him and take from him what he robbed from me. I had to slice his, his pizza pie a little bit thinner, and that's how we help each other. But that's really a mentality of poverty. What we had to have is a mentality where you can bake your own pie, and you have to believe that you can make it, that it's possible. And if you make your own pie, what do you care what is the size of the pie of the other person. What we have created is an antagonistic society where we look at the rich 
and we look at the poor and we hate each other. You know? What is happening is what is supposed to happen is different. I have always this analogy that I like. I'm walking down the street with a sandwich in my hands and minding my business and I look to the side of the road and there's a hungry guy right there sitting on the street. I move to compassion. I deprive myself of what is mine, my sandwich, and I give it to one to the other person. That's true compassion. It was my property. And I voluntarily, willingly gave my sandwich to this guy. I will do it again, because it was right, and it made me feel good. Not just feeling good. It was the right thing to do. And the person who received feels great gratitude towards me. He didn't have to give me his pie, his sandwich. It was mine. It's, it wasn't mine. It was his. Maybe I'll change my life, and I pass on the goodness to someone else. But this is what we had done in America. I'm walking down the street, eating my sandwich, minding my business, and I look to the side of the road, and there's a hungry guy. And before I can do anything, here comes running the government commissar, snatches the sandwich from my hands, and gives it to the poor person. That's a totally different exercise now. What I feel is resentment, because a third party has taken my property, and the third party has decided what to do with it. What I'm going to do next time, I'm going to protect my property. And that's why many people are not compassionate. What they did, they hide their sandwich in their pocket, so when the guy comes, they cannot snatch it. And that's what they do. They write their taxes at the end of the year. I, I did my job for the poor. Don't come back to me for more. And what happens with the person who received the sandwich? He said, well, I don't have to say thank you to you. It belongs to me. Yeah, the, good the good commissar gave it to me. It must be mine. And you expect me to eat this sandwich without a drink? Go back to the same guy <laughs> and take more from him so I can have my own. So the, the gift becomes an entitlement, and a never-ending entitlement. And that is a society of antagonisms, instead of a society of encounter between free individuals helping each other. And that is what I encourage you when you go to, go to ministry to the poor, to see every human being as unique and unrepeatable. Forget about the poor. That doesn't mean anything. Get to know Juan Perez or Johnny Smith and their family and their reality. And then you can see face to face this human being and try to help that person discover what makes that person flourish. And side by side, work with that person. That person has to walk his own journey. You cannot walk the journey of the poor for them. You have to be there side by side. Yes, sister. Well, look at their reality. Look at their interests. And trying to create simple, practical projects that focus on that reality. For example, when we look at the reality of school supplies, well, they need the school supplies. It's true. It's not false that they need the school supplies. They like, they have a, in their schools, they already have gardens. And they love to do that. Kids love to do gardening. What we did was we went to the school and we renamed it to a farm. 
Why is that? Because a farm conveys the idea of wealth creation. Gardening is something nice in the backyard of your house. But now they see themselves not just as gardeners, as farmers, as producers of wealth. And then when they see that some money comes to their hands for what they did, that creates something in them that energizes them. They want to make more money. There's nothing wrong with self-interest. People think that self-interest is wrong. No. Think about what the Lord said. Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. In other words, you need to know what is good to you first to be able then to help the other. So if the, your self-interest is what, what is best for you, your family, those you love, your church. That is self-interest. Self-interest is never alone. I cannot conceive my life without my children and the best for them. I cannot see, conceive my life with, without a good community around me. So when you pursue your self-interest, simply means God has given me certain talents. I have been made unique and unrepeatable by God. And I have a responsibility to utilize those talents to the best of my cap capacities. That's self-interest. We have been made by God with reason. We can know the truth and with the capacity to choose. We can do the good. That is our dignity. That's how we mirror the creator in the double capacity of reason and will. And then when we exercise that, good things happen. And that's what I encourage people. It takes time, you know? That's one of the things we're going to learn, that it takes time to help the poor. It takes intelligence. The problem is that what, this is what we do. We go from the heart to the muscle. Yeah. We feel sorry for people. We start doing things. That's what happens. But we need to start here first with reason. We need to have an intelligent assessment of what are the real needs of the poor. Then we have to have a heart for the poor. And then we move into action. And we go back to assess and reassess what we are doing. If you make strictly emotional decisions, you end up giving stuff away. That's what we do. We pack a bag of food, we give it to the poor, and it feels good. It's about me. We go to a mission trip. Oh, I got so much from that mission trip. I didn't think it was about you. <laughs> I thought it was about the people that needed you in the mission trip. You see, you see it, it ends up becoming an emotional satisfaction that we have because we are doing something. But we perpetuate poverty by making it the way we do it. What has been the response? 7% of American children were born outside of marriage, for example, since the war on poverty. 42% increase, if 600% increase since the war on poverty. The problem is the poverty is, is the family in America. That is the great problem of poverty. The family has been destroyed. And that is something that there's no government program that can fix. You know, do you know that you do these three things and 98% of the people who do these three things are not poor today in America? Number one, you finish high school. Number two, you get a job. 
But at any income level, level, it could be even minimum wage. Number three, you get married. And number four, no, you get married and then have a child. In that order. <laughs> you first finish high school, then you get a job, and then you get married and have children. If you do those things in that order, 98% of the people across races in America do not live in poverty. The problem is that we don't do those things in that order. It's easier said than done, you know? It's not easy. So the reality is that the culture determines the economics, not the other way around. You know, people are not poor because they don't have money in the pocket. They don't have money in the pocket because there's a poverty. Someone mentioned before uh, spiritual poverty. There's a reality of a spiritual poverty in America that has no connection with the amount of money you have in your pocket. You can, maybe be, you can be a millionaire and be spiritually poor. So poverty really has no connection with the amount of money you have in the, po in the, in, in the pocket. It has to do with the values you embrace. And then when we go into exercises to help the poor, always have that in mind. Number one, that, poverty, that, that the poverty you are seeing in America is not a poverty where people do not have a way out of that poverty. You go to Haiti, and it's a different <laughs> scenario. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how much you want to study, how much you want to change. Sometimes it's not possible, but that's not true in America. I have a friend from Liberia. He came from the Civil War in Liberia. All his family was murdered because he was a Mandingo. He, he, he was of the wrong tribe, and they were killing the people from the wrong tribe. Well, he came here as a refugee. Now he has a master's degree and lives a middle-class status in here in this country. Don't tell me that you cannot make it in this country. It's not true. It is possible to make it. But we have to help people discover that in themselves. You know, and we sometimes do the opposite when we start handing stuff to them. Welfare spending and poverty in America. Look at what has happened in this country in the last few years. In 1964, we started a war on poverty. We started to spend trillions of dollars on government prog programs for the poor. We have spent 22 trillion dollars since 1964. $22 trillion. That's more money than most of the, of the budgets of most countries on Earth combined. And we are told today that we have more poor people than in 1964. Obviously, money is not going to answer the problems of poverty. In 1981, we had a, a reform. And what happened with spending? So we reformed the program, program, and we spent more than we were spending before the reform. And we had another in 1996, and we continued to spend and spend and spend more money in these government programs that do not help the poor. In my, in my Hispanic and black community, what happened in the 1960s and, and 50s and 40s? Well, you know, there was great, great racism. What were the two institutions that help African Americans, for example, when government wasn't there? There are two institutions. No, no, two, two, two groups in society. Number one will be what? 
even more important than that. What is the most basic institution in society? The church is one, and the second is the family. Exactly, the church and the family. If you needed something, you will go to your family. In Africa, you know why families are so strong? Because if you are not in good terms with your family, you die. If you go to the hospital in Africa and your family doesn't bring you food, you die of hunger in the hospital because they don't feed you. If you go to jail and your family don't bring you food every day, you die of hunger in jail because they will not feed you. In other words, you better be in good terms with your family. So that's why the bonds of family are so strong. The same happened in the African-American community. The bonds of family were strong because it was a way to help each other when they have so much oppression around them. And the second one was the church. You know, if you needed a job, you needed help, you needed food, you go to your pastor. But there was a moral connection to that exercise in those days. If you go to your pastor, he will tell you, I'll help you, but I want to see you on Sunday. Treat that woman right, try to get a job, stay in the straight and narrow, because if not, I won't help you. But suddenly, here comes the welfare government and telling you, doesn't matter how you live. How much you make? What's your social? Here's the check. Here's the reward for your poverty. And the weaker you are, the bigger the check. And now I can tell my pastor, who cares what you think? I have, I have money in my hand. I can live my life anywhere I want. So we perpetuated poverty by creating these bureaucracies of, of fake compassion that give people things to be that pass by a month and a month and a month, and we don't fix the problem at all. And that is the problem we are having in America today. 126 got federal programs for poverty we have in America today. 126 federal programs. And we are told that we have more poverty than we had before. And it's, it's again, we are seeing the reality of poverty in a different light system. I was just wondering, um, you mentioned how you felt, like how do you, yeah. uh, maybe something you're gonna get to, but just yeah. that with We're gonna get that when we talk about the seven principles of effective compassion. There are seven principles that we should follow, that if we should follow those seven principles, we can find answers to these prob problems. But very briefly to tell you, the thing is that you incentives are more important than these positions. In other words, incentives are more important than your good intentions. And if we create programs that create an incentive that is positive, then you will see at least a number of people embracing that opportunity. The problem is that we treat the poor as a group, again, a mass of people. And if we have success with one, we think we are not having success. And that is the problem. We see ourselves as rescuers of the poor. When we all, we, all we have to do is open them the possibilities that they choose voluntarily. Your life is your responsibility, not mine. We have to convey that to them. The problem is that we are not conveying that, that, that message. Your life is someone else's fault, and I'm here to fix, fix it. You know, 
I always say to people who are trying to help the poor, there's one savior and it's not you. <laughs> it's in heaven, it's not you. Stop thinking that you can rescue. What we have to create is systems that create the incentive. And that's why I believe in entrepreneurship and, and programs that help the people earn something. Because when you earn, there's something magical there that incentivizes people to move in that direction. There are others who won't, you know, but more and more of them will move. Number two, we need to be humble because we live in a society where many others are going in a different direction. You know, you do a soup kitchen the right way, they just have to cross across the street and there's another ministry there that just give them whatever for free. You know, we are, we are fighting a strong monster here. And we have to be humble, we have to be steadfast and take one person at a time and creating incentives. Programs that have built-in incentives that help people see things in a different way. Yes. 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 However, it should not be from the federal government. Uh, the, there is a Catholic principle. It's called the principle of subsidiarity. We're going to be talking about that later. That tells us that you know that, that needs are better met closer to those in need. One of the reasons that that is the case is that when when the reality is closer to you, you can see the contours of that reality better than when it's from far away. For example. Uh, of every $3 that go into the federal government <clears throat> for welfare alleviation, one of those dollars ever reaches the hands of the poor. Two of those dollars are eaten up by the bureaucracies that we have created. So we have created all these structures, all the money get, gets there, and it's eaten up by these bureaucracies. And at the end, a little crumbs actually get to the hands of the poor. But if we can create local systems of support, we're going to be talking about how the history of the welfare state in the second part. And how it started, the welfare state started by churches and by volunteers helping each other. Later, later on, the local governments got in the way. And finally, then, the states and eventually the federal government. Yes. Let me start with the second, uh, and thank you for being so honest, because I, that's, this is good for the exercise. In terms of being a joke, that's what I thought at that time, you see? I was giving you the context of coming to America and being presented with the reality of poverty that I called a joke at that time, you see? I'm not saying it's a joke, I'm saying that that was my, my, my experience in encountering what was called poverty here and comparing it with the reality of my poor existence in Puerto Rico. I said, this is a joke, give me some of that poverty because my life would have been much better improved by being in poverty here than being poverty in another, in another state. So I'm not saying that poverty is a joke. I'm saying that the reality is that we need to look things in context. That's what we call about relative poverty relative to the conditions of life in a given society. And that's what I said, when you compare the relative poverty in the United States, you have to understand that it's relative to the lifestyle of the wealthiest country in the history of the human race. When you compare that lifestyle 
with most lifestyles of middle class people in America and I mean around the world, the reality is that the lifestyles of the poor in the United States compare favorably even with middle class European nations. So we had to have that as a basis of understanding what is the reality of poverty here and how to attain that poverty vis-a-vis what solutions we can present to people in other contexts where really the poverty will, be, will need a different response. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a joke. But that was my, my encounter with a different reality. Number two, you need to be careful with social, Catholic social justice uh, encyclicals because they tend to be prudential statements. You know, in other words, Catholic social justice has some general statements or general uh, binding beliefs. For example, uh, it's a binding belief that I should be against racism. Why? Because it offends directly the dignity of the human person. Every Catholic has to be for that. Does that mean that I have to be in favor of affirmative action? No. That's a prudential statement. See, so many times the church does speak, and the popes does speak, in ways that are prudential. This is their best application of the general principles of Catholic social state. The second is when, even when it comes to the conferences of bishops, has even a lesser uh, uh, binding uh, quality to, to those communications. Why is that? Because again, the bishops are not experts in economics. They have their departments of social justice and others. They put these documents and they give what is their best prudential understanding on how to meet the needs of the poor. And there have been very, very faithful Catholics, Robert P. George and others, who have sternly, for example, challenged the bishops on economic justice for all which seemed to be a really a political uh, position of the bishops, which has no binding power on the mind and the f of the faithful. It's really their prudential assessment on how to look and how to find uh, solutions. And third, I, answering your questions, I did say that there is a role for government. I, I said that it should not be the federal government because remember, in America, it's a federal system. You know? We have federal, the idea of federalism. The federal government, the national government, is a government of delegated powers. In other words, the Constitution gives the federal government very specific tasks in our system. This is, and it's written down in the Constitution. And you cannot find the care of the poor as one of those delegate powers. And the 10th Amendment to the Constitution tells us whatever is not written here reverts back to the people and to the states. Their governments and the people in the states have other uh, powers and other responsibilities. My position is that the care of the poor, that's what we need to look at the principle of subsidiarity. There is a hierarchy. The poor are at the center. Who is the one who is, has the first line of responsibility in helping the poor? Your neighbor, as the Bible says, you know? You saw your neighbor in need and you did not help your neighbor. Those, your neighborhoods, your family, 
civic associations, churches, nonprofits, those who are closer to that reality and can see the reality close and attend that need in a better way. And then from there, you expand into the local governments in a subsidiary way, as one of the, uh, the readings you read. The role of the government should always be secondary, means subsidiary, as an assistance to churches, nonprofits, and others who are trying to attend the needs of the poor, assisting them when it's needed. The problem is that the, the farther away that you place those systems of care from the poor, the more bureaucratic ways enter into the picture. Why is that? Because bureaucracies is, are the response to complexity. You know, if I am here for a long time, I will, I will know your names. But imagine that you have 100,000. Even in my county, we have a million people. If the government is the one who's going to have the primary responsibility to help the poor in my county in Florida, it's going to have to be a bureaucracy that does not see you as a person, sees you as a number. Number two, they will have to generalize the response to poverty as a response to the complexity of having to deal with so many people at the same time. But when it's you and me helping the poor, and I, and I meet Jose Perez and his family, I can assist them directly to the real, deeper human needs. And that's a better way. And that's what I say, it should not be, the, the larger responsibility should always be to those closer to the one in need. And the less responsibility should be placed on these bureaucracy bureaucracies because they cannot see you as a person. They can only see you as a number. And that's what I'm trying to say. There is a responsibility. The closer that that government is to the poor, the greater the responsibility. But in America, we have bureaucratized the care of the poor. And we have connected the poor directly to the, gov the federal government. You know, you can live in poverty here and not have to deal with those around you. You go directly to these government agencies and you bypass those who are closer to you. <coughs> in my example with the African-American community, in the past, if you really needed help, you needed to have these connections within your community. And there was a moral expectation here. So there was a better probability of attending poverty and getting out of poverty when you had all these connections close to you. But here comes then these bureaucracies that bypass the family, bypass the church, and connect you directly from the bureaucracy to the individual. And then they perpetuate poverty instead of fixing it. That's the problem I have. But yes, government, has a place to uphold human dignity. I believe that that's a very general statement that does not necessarily entail welfare programs and things like that. These programs cannot be eliminated from one day to the other. You know, these monsters didn't happen in two days. <laughs> this has happened for a long time. But we need to begin to move the care of the poor closer to the poor, you know, and that's my point. And the government in, go in Washington should receive that responsibility and bring it back closer 
to the, to, the, to the state governments, to the counties, to the cities. And I believe we'll find a, an answer to, the, to, to these problems. Uh, I have seen it. I have seen it happen with people who are totally disconnected from those who can really assist them in the local level because they don't need any more. They don't need them anymore. They already have a connection to a line of resources that is there in place. Every, every situation is different. The principles are the same across the world. But the, the specific application of the principles is going to change depending on the situation. But let, let me give you this, this uh, chart for a moment that, that explains what I'm trying to say. Until 1967, the federal government never spent more than $50 billion a year in poverty alleviation. $50 billion today is like chump change compared with the money we spent until 1967. But look at what was happening to poverty in America since the 1940s. It was going down. It was almost disappearing in America without federal intervention. You know why is that? Because poverty was tough and you wanted to get rid of it. You wanted to get out of it. And people were hard, the families were strong, mom, the dad will work two jobs, and the mother will sew garments at home. Things were tight, but you educated your children, you sacrificed your generation for the good of your children. Eventually, your children will get out of poverty, and they will reach out and bring you out of poverty with them. That's how people were getting out of poverty, by working hard, strong families, and strong communities. Federal government was almost absent. Well, in 1967, we changed our mind about this. And look what happened with federal spending on poverty, skyrocketed. But the downward trend of poverty ended. Poverty stabilized at around 10 to 15% after that. So poverty was going down in America without most federal intervention. Federal intervention skyrockets, and the downward trend on poverty alleviation disappears. Why is that? Because we made poverty bearable. There's no longer that impetus and that desire to get out of poverty. In the second part, we're going to talk about that. You know, I have seen soup kitchens that they say, well, we need to give the best of the best of the best to the poor. Well, if you give me free, rich carton quality, free food every day, why in the world would I want something lesser by working? So we incentivize poverty by the things we do because they do not understand the human person and what motivates the human person. What motivates the human person, if, you, if I'm here and you, you meet every need I have, you are incentivizing passivity. I become a passive recipient of your magnanimity. What I believe is that we need to create simple projects that show the way, that teach people the values, the strategies, that they can take then and apply to the other needs they have in their life. And then they'll find a way on their own. But when you have this massive number of programs attending every hole of need and plugging every hole, we are not letting the poor 
exercise their freedom to get out of poverty. And we have seen it, that poverty, the alleviation, money is not the answer. You know, I agree, government can do many things to help the poor, but that does not necessarily translate into money. We think that money, spending money, is going to answer poverty. And I say, that's not the answer of poverty. If that were the answer, we would not have poverty in America today. After 22 trillion dollars spent, Obviously, money is not going to answer this problem. This problem. I think that we Christians have the answer. The thing is that we have rescinded our responsibility towards the poor, and we have relegated it to these bureaucracies that we have created. I pay my taxes, and they take care of the poor. Why you come to me? I did my job. And that is what I see as the problem with these bureaucracies of compassion. Of course, if you see someone in need, you know, and driving around and you're bleeding there, needing assistance, you don't go to that person and say, and tell him, hey, be self-reliant. <laughs> you go and you attend that need at that moment. But there is a difference between a crisis situation of need and the condition of poverty. Remember that. There's a difference between an authentic crisis situation of need and the condition of poverty itself. In a crisis situation of need, you help. And I don't care who does it, government, whomever, you help. But if you see the same guy again in two weeks there, you know that there is a deeper problem, maybe alcohol, something else. Then you are talking about a condition. The condition of poverty can only be met by the poor themselves. And that's how we can come side by side them and show them the way out of poverty. I believe that entrepreneurship is the answer to this. I, I have seen it happen. But there are other ways to try to encourage the poor. But I think that we are about uh, time. Okay, but this is what has happened in America in terms of uh, government spending and poor poverty. Yes, um, are the labels? as uh, we have 79, we have 126 means-tested assistance programs in the federal government that spend 900 billion dollars a year in poverty alleviation. We have uh, spent 260 billion in government, state government uh, programs for attending poverty. So 900 from the federal state government, 200 billion from the states, plus churches, nonprofits, and all these other bureaucracies. And we don't have the answer to poverty. You know, I, I finish with this. I have seen this happen with many nonprofits. Uh, I tried to start a group in my area with many nonprofits, and the problem is that they become so enamored to these grants that are coming from the government that they follow the money, they do not follow what the, peop the poor really need. We have a, a, about 10 different nonprofits, and suddenly comes a million dollars in a grant from the state of Tallahassee for mentoring. All of them wanted to do mentoring. Why? Because they wanted the money. And then the next year was 
food distribution money. That's exactly what we need. <laughs> they went after the grant. So you begin to follow the money, not follow your mission. And what happens? You create this nonprofit with a lot of government money, and your employees know from where the money comes for their check. And it does not come from your organization. It comes from government. Eventually, your organization becomes another bureaucracy of government. And we Christians had to make a choice. Are we faithful, press, faithful Christians present among the poor, or are we the hired hand of the state? Is our presence among the poor going to be measured by how many bags we pack with food or by that encounter with the poor? I believe that the encounter with the poor is more significant. Whatever God bestows in our hands as a gift, we share with the poor. But it's our presence with them what will determine the quality of our work. And, and I have seen, I, I have written in, in the government in, in the magazines of the Catholic Church, encouraging the bishops to stop receiving government funding. Tell, tell Pharaoh to give his money. And we will get the money from the kingdom. And the kingdom people will give money to us, and then we use the money to share with the poor. It doesn't matter if it's less money. Because the, the significance of our encounter with the poor should not be measured by how much money we have to share, but how much of us we share with the poor. And I believe that that is more significant than anything else that we can do for the poor. And, and I have seen it. I, I, there was a grant in the Catholic Charities of my, my diocese where they, did, they couldn't put a cross on their desk. They couldn't share the gospel with, 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 with people because the money came from a government agency that didn't allow them. You really believe that that was more important than sharing the gospel with them, than sharing their lives with the poor? And that's what I'm trying to say. I am not against government. I work with government agencies in my, my, in my ministry. And we share resources and never have gotten a dime from them. You know? And we have created systems in our self-reliance club. We are now in 25 public schools. We haven't had to hire one person. And we are in 25, and we are being opening more self-reliance clubs. We, we have taken the time to intelligently assess the needs of the poor and find simple, practical, meaningful projects that teach a value. That's what is important that our project teach a value so the poor can internalize that value and use that as a resource to meet their needs elsewhere. And that's what I encourage you to, to do. So this is the kind of poverty that we have to attend that is different from another kind of poverty. The unrestrained appetite for comfort acquired without effort and leading us into vice and sin. This is a different kind of poverty. There is really a poverty that is really of lacking resources. There are people who are deprived and vulnerable and desperate. 
There are people who are, their dignity is not being actualized. They are lesser, they are hungry. But how are you going to identify them unless you are having an encounter with them? You know? I have had a, a, a experiences. Let's say that you have a, a, a food distribution bank, and you don't ask people any, dis, any questions. You just give and give and give. And many of them come, and they don't need the food. I have seen the distributions of people do. That they go from bank to bank, and at the end, they can open a supermarket. You know? <laughs> it happens. You know? But what happens is you give and give, and you don't ask questions, and then you and, and emptied your, your food distribution bank, and then comes the family with children who really need it, and you have nothing for them because you did not ask the right questions before, because you did not put the criteria that was needed. You were only looking at how you feel in trying to help the poor. And then you don't have for those who really need. How that is fixed? by closeness with the poor. We're gonna talk about that in the second part. Closeness with the poor. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.